So Julie, I often tell people that there are four opportunities to overcoming an objection, the most powerful of which is before the objection happens. Have you ever heard of this concept? You're always teaching me new stuff, Torin. No, I haven't. Tell me more. So the acronym for me, and it's something that I used back in the 90s when I had my own sales team, the acronym is WNLB. Well, the B stands for before. And before any of you start to wonder which online system is best for payroll, let me share a few facts. Gusto is actually simple and easy, surprisingly easy and very fast. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. 85% of customers say running payroll is easier now than their previous provider. And three out of four customers take 10 minutes or less to run payroll with Gusto. I think that's easy. You can use our link, gusto.com forward slash C-A-T-K for three complimentary months. Again, that's gusto.com forward slash C-A-T-K. It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. You know, we should have came in with like jingle bells, jingle bell, you know, like, uh, because this is like holiday. Well, I mean, we're in the middle of the season. Yeah. And, And here's what's interesting. Anybody right now experiencing this holiday season should be like super thankful like super 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 and i don't say that lightly i know i have a smile on my face but like if you survived 2020 and all of the twists and turns you should be listening sipping on some mocha probably infused with a shot of cbd and smiling (laughs) because you made it what's popping jay how are you and things are great things are great wrapping up year two i can't believe it so this is um one of our interviews that we've been waiting on so i'm excited and pumped up for this show um just thankful but i am knocking on wood because 2020 is not over yet um saw something really cool though in um in pedestrian tv this week kmart is now selling Dolls with a variety of disabilities, including Down syndrome dolls, which are absolutely adorable. Uh, and, and that made me smile the, this holiday week. Pause. Question for you. Yep. I agree with you uh, around the absolutely adorable aspect. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like to be honest um, and yep. I like to use the show to keep me honest. And okay. when I first saw the article. I originally smiled and was like, this is so incredible. And then I found myself, Julie, for just a moment, looking at the image of the doll, taking in that image, you know, living with that image really in that moment and Mm -hmm. asking myself, uh, because you and Carmen Daniels, some several years ago, um, you you had a phrase and I I always forget the phrase uh, pity, not pity porn. Um, inspiration porn. Say it again. Inspiration porn. Inspiration porn. Yes. Thank you. And, and so I found myself, I'm always challenging myself. Like, am I 
finding adoration in this doll because of that? Am I finding adoration and beauty in the doll because they represent a part of humanity? And and I don't know if I necessarily walked away with an answer, but I will tell you that it did cause me to pause. It really made me stop for a moment. And I actually thought that that was a good thing, that I didn't just read the article and just, you know, kept it moving. Yeah. I mean, you're coming full circle with recognizing your biases, yeah. right? And, and in my opinion, grown adults are not cute and adorable. Um, dolls are definitely cute and adorable. And dolls with Down syndrome are very cute and adorable. Yeah. So I think it's, it's good that you recognize that. And I think for you, you just need to determine what was the causation of it, right? Was it um, singularly that you were worried about what this doll represented in terms of, was it an abusive representation? Yeah. Or was it the fact that you still have that little, yeah, but about kind of the full humanity and beauty of people with disabilities, right? So we're getting rid of like that, that little, yeah, but that may still exist. Like there's a couple of different ways that that could be manifesting yeah, or reasons why it could be manifesting. Um, but it's excellent that you identified it and are kind of wrestling with it to find what the truth of it is so that, that you can move forward as even a better ally than you are already. Absolutely. I love that you say that. Uh, I say that from stage often that, you know, if in fact we're going to be in this work, we should be challenged and we should wrestle with what it means to be human. Uh, and I so appreciate you uh, inserting that word wrestling. It's one of my favorite words when I am standing behind a mic. God, I cannot wait until I get to a stage. Uh, <sighs> until someone says, come into a stage near you, I cannot wait for that moment. Um, hey, so listen, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, uh, research scientist, Dr. Timnet Gebru, uh, who um, some say resigned from Microsoft. Others say were, were, was uh, wrongfully fired, terminated from Microsoft. Uh, that being said, Microsoft's CEO did make a comment on her let's say absence, we'll use that phrase. Uh, so I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to seeing how that unfolds and whether uh, he and the organization will do something a bit more substantive around that scenario, because it was absolutely, um, it, it just wasn't a good look. It wasn't a good look for the organization in any way. It wasn't a good look for her immediate supervisors, the team of leaders over there at Microsoft. So I'm glad he stepped in. Let's see if he does a little bit more than just window dress this uh, situation. And last yeah. but not least, all true. Our yeah. dear friend, Ali Khan, um, he and the team were acquired by iSims for $60 million. You might have missed that announcement a couple of weeks back, but I'm absolutely proud of him. Like he is one of the good guys in HR tech, absolutely deserving. So, 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 so happy for him and for his team. And I didn't miss that because Chad and Cheese broke it on a shred this week. So congrats to Ali Khan. I know um, the guys are excited for you as well. Hmm. You know, <laughs> it's like uh, you said something, you said Chad and Cheese broke it. You know, I, I'm, I'm really yearning for the day 
And maybe our guest will be able to help us with this because she's like a WNBA star of DNI. Like, I mean, how often do we get to rock with folks from outside of the country and get their perspective? So, so maybe she can, she can help us with this. But, you know, I'm, I'm yearning for the day that people see Crazy and the King as a trusted resource and they hit us on our back channels and hit us in our DMs and drop emails on us with happenings that are inside of organizations that we can, we can put the breaking news banner on and, and really push you know, push this whole DNI thing. So anyway, is it cool? You want to get into this week's show? Is that good? Absolutely. Been waiting. Yep. Awesome. So our special guest will deliver on two fronts this week. I like to call this emotional recalibration and corporate DNI work. That's where Kay sits. Uh, in 2019, she self-published her first book about how she recovered from burnout at age 22. Now you can find her on Twitter at KFAB. How lovely is that? KFAB, K-A-Y-F-A-B. Now you know, KFAB. Hey, listen, she amplifies the voices of underrepresented leaders. She helps companies with DEI work. Welcome to Crazy and the King. How are you, Kay? I mean, after that intro, I think I'm shook. (laughs) No. Show enough, you rocking with two of the best. So show enough, we got to show, we, listen, we got to make sure we welcome you into the house and we got to do that with the proper do, as they say. And you are sitting in Spain and I meant that, you know, sincerely, we don't often get to have an international voice to join us. And so we absolutely appreciate uh, you being on the show. Tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, the pleasure is all mine. I mean, I've been listening to some episodes ever since Torin joined my sphere. So it's a real honor to be here. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing. So for me, I'm originally from California, from Los Angeles, uh, but I am a second generation American. My parents are Filipino originally. And I landed in Spain 2010. So over 10 years now at the time of this recording, which is kind of crazy. Um, so it's really funny because this is actually when you find me on LinkedIn, uh, Kay Fabella, one of the reasons, and and this came up recently, somebody asked me, why do you have all these flag emojis after your name on LinkedIn? And for me, it was a shorthand for my identity story. It was, you know, I have the American flag, I have the Filipino flag and I'm the Spanish flag because I'm now, I'm now a Spanish resident. And, and so that's kind of a cool entry point into how I got into this work. I think I've always been somebody who, did, without even realizing it, now I'm looking back on my story, it's, I could always see both sides of every issue because I never quite fit in somebody else's box. And I think that perspective, at, at least initially, when you're growing up as a woman of color, as a daughter of immigrants in California, and you get that second question, where are you from, followed by where are you really from, um, you learn the importance of not just having to tell your story, but also the, what happens if somebody else assigns you a narrative if you don't speak up on your behalf. And I think initially as a child, when you're looking to fit in, you are, you, you're seeing that non-belonging as a rejection of self. But as you grow older, you realize that all of that storytelling skill or mojo, if you call it, that you've been developing over time is actually your greatest strength for helping others understand each other. 
So that's how I got into the DEI space. I didn't even realize it was called that or that was the work that I was doing, but simply by showing up in many rooms where I wasn't only first in LA, then on the East Coast, then landing here in Spain, I was just changing people's minds about things or expanding their worldview simply by showing up and sharing who I was. And how I got into DEI work specifically, so my original kind of foray into business was I've always been passionate about stories. You can tell that from even just the last couple of seconds talking. And I really deeply believed in, I made this connection very early on. Like if I was growing up in Hollywood and people were asking me where, uh, near Hollywood rather, and people were asking me, where are you really from? It's because they didn't see representation or they didn't see examples of people who looked like me. So that's why people struggle to locate me. So what happens if we highlight more people's voices from those groups that are currently considered excluded or underrepresented across the gamut? And so that was how I started was I was doing one-on-one coaching. I was working with minority leaders, really helping them to figure out who they were and how to leverage that and share their message. And then I got called because the expat community here is quite small in Madrid (laughs) uh, into my first corporate gig at uh, Standard & Poor's here in Madrid um, for an employee resource group to talk about how to help their employees uh, with self-advocacy, specifically their women. And naturally, my brain, I think I'm in good company here, is just very curious, is always looking for, well, okay, now that the workshop's over, what comes next? And that led into my rabbit hole that has become the work that I do now with DEI. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's what I'm up to. And I guess what I do now, let's see, (laughs) pre-pandemic, I was really trying to move into this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you say pre-pandemic? Like it's almost hard for us to even remember what life was like before March of 2020. I know it's like we've been in this like Groundhog Day version of reality for so long we don't remember. No Um, doubt. (laughs) But no, pre-pandemic, I was really, I think I, one of the intersections I was seeing that a lot of people weren't really thinking about so much was um, this idea of, okay, our teams are going to become remote. I think we kept talking about the future of work, the future of work, the future of work, but companies weren't really adapting or preparing themselves for what does a flexible office look like? Um, What are we going to do when our teams want to spend less time in the office, especially younger generations that don't necessarily want to have to come in every day that care more about work-life balance? And how do you prepare your, you know, and that falls within DEI, but no one was really talking about it. I guess it's not quite as sexy as, you know, like a gender workshop. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it was the direction that I was trying to go. And it was oddly prescient pre-pandemic. Um, that's the work that I started playing in, um, even before. And because I was already really comfortable delivering this stuff virtually, it allowed me to, you know, now I was in my playground, everybody was at home. I already had a master's degree in waist up dressing. So I got, I had this, uh, you know, so it was, it was actually, I, I thought in a weird way, 2020 being as challenging as it was and, and taking a toll on all of us in different ways. It, for me, it was a, the great leveler in the sense that I could now actually speak to people or companies or teams that now they could actually see the importance of, oh, this is what we have to, this is what we're worrying about. Not just the fact that we're worrying about flexible workspaces, but also what does culture now look like when we're not in the office anymore? And how do we make sure our people are taken care of in the midst of all this? So 
that's been the space that I have been playing in. And, and yeah, that's, um, it's so interesting that you mentioned the emotional calibration connection there as well, Tori. And I feel like because there are so many emotions in this work, uh, you have to navigate a lot of them <laughs> and you can't do that unless you've gone through your own personal crucible. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I smile as you say that because, you know, Julie and I, we, we did a recording a couple of months back and, uh, I won't get into the details, but post recording, once we had hit the pause button and, you know, we were just talking amongst ourselves, you know, Julie was sharing with me, um, you know, a bit of a, a roller coaster that she was experiencing. And, you know, I just sat with my, um, you know, well, normally when we record, it's in the afternoon and I typically have a beverage next to me. Julie knows that. Uh, and I just kind of just sat there and was just enjoying the, the, the transparency and the sharing. Uh, but Julie's good at that. I am a sharer. I am a sharer. Um, so I want to kind of talk about how DNI efforts are different um, in the EU versus the United States. I, I was checking out your site this morning and just sent over my um, one of your episodes about the three main differences between the United States and the EU in terms of DEI. And I'm curious as to, one, um, what you see as the primary kind of benefits or obstacles um, in in each space. And and then second to your, your first point, because what we're dealing with every single day right now is how do we help the companies we work with um, manage not just accommodations, but the emotional toll and, and all those kind of things of, of working from home. So, you know, how is Europe or, or maybe just Spain looking at changing now that we have vaccines rolling out? Do we go back to the old work in Europe or, or is, is the future of work here to stay? Yeah. So there's a lot of really good layers in that conversation. And I know you all like multi-layered conversations. So here we go. Um, <laughs> so I say, actually, it's really interesting because the DEI conversation, so I'll start kind of micro and work my way out. So within Spain and within, I would say most of the EU, legally companies are required to um, have a sort of, and I hate using this word, but quota for disability. Um, meaning that companies actually get tax benefits for employing people from differently abled or disabled backgrounds. And I thought that was so fascinating because I know that's not really a part of the conversation in the U.S. That was the most jarring thing to me when I first got into this work here um, in the sense that why isn't that something that we're talking about in the U.S. more prevalently? And if that's what it takes to get companies to pay attention and make that possible, then, hey, there's a real cool opportunity there. Um, so that's one piece. I would say that Spain is an interesting one specifically because when it comes to our sort of racial diversity conversation, they are, you know, not behind the times, but they would, I would say, are being hit with their first real wave of immigration this generation because under Franco, under that dictatorship, they were closed off for 50 years. Mm -hmm. So of course, anyone who looks remotely like Asian in my case, or 
my face is always confusing apparently wherever I travel, but um, here specifically, because I read Asian, I'm automatically Chinese because that's all they know, right? So that's an indication of, you know, immigrants are still very much within their boxes of like, oh, Asians have their kind of 24 hour, you can stop and grab anything stores. Um, people from the African continent are the people who are selling counterfeit goods in the street. It's very much like a here are the boxes. So the actual racial conversation, especially within, you know, corporate, professional services, financial services, et cetera, it's just not really there. I would say if anything, it's more around gender. And then within that, there's also the regional differences of each of the autonomous communities, which have Again, their whole, I mean, Spain is home to four main, main languages. <laughs> and one of them is a linguistic anomaly that nobody knows where the heck it came from. Um, and it's been, it predates pretty much every language that we know of um, on the Iberian Peninsula and in some cases, parts of Europe. So there's a lot of regional differences that I think were exacerbated under Franco when he was trying to bring everything under this very much conformist no other language spoken except Castilian Spanish. So I would say Spain still is straddling this very interesting place of looking outward to what they are seeing in terms of capitalism and um, what the rest of the EU or I guess the Western democracies in the EU are, are doing and trying to play catch up. And that means that the DEI conversation or the DNI conversation is still very new. Um, I would say as soon as you go to other places like the UK, which I think is the closest in terms of culture to the US, um, because so many companies from the US have either a headquarters there or look to the US for anything related to HR or talent development, et cetera, there are a lot of, a lot of conversations that are mirrored, especially around race and ethnicity. But then it's a completely different conversation around um, you know, again, who historically landed in the country. And I think within the larger continent, again, it's, I'm like, I'm the spokesperson for all of Europe, but I'm not. <laughs> like, Today you are. <laughs> um, but I would say in general, what I found super interesting was just observing how in the wake of George Floyd's murder, race as a conversation, which was very not taboo, but just, oh, well, I think we're maybe five, 10 years, depending on the country behind the US in terms of, oh, we'll fix gender first, and then we'll get to the all, all the other stuff. Or in Spain's case, we'll fix disability and gender first, and then we'll get to the all the other stuff. Um, that, that then inserting itself into the conversation and the US being such a cultural superpower as it is, just shook everyone up entirely. And so now what I'm seeing as the dust has settled is how individuals within those organizations who want to continue the conversation forward are crying out for how do we find training or at the very least somebody to help us lead these conversations in a culturally contextually appropriate way that fits what we know that isn't so US centric. Because a black person in the UK is going to have a very different conversation from a first generation black person in Spain or Germany or Switzerland or other parts of the EU. But so, are they are they really? 
you know, I'm I'm sitting here listening. I'm I'm, I'm fascinating. Hmm. You know, your and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I did because I want us to have. I want that. I want listeners to hear the conversation and the beauty of your conversation. And so I had to jump in because it's fascinating to hear you to hear you talk about the 24-hour stores. That's a perception we have right here. That's something we see, you know, the Chinese restaurant, right, Julie? You know, we expect them to have the Chinese restaurant, the corner store, at least in Baltimore. I shouldn't even include you in that, Julie. I'm sorry. But in Baltimore, we expect the Asians or we anticipate that the corner store we see belongs to an Asian or it has an Asian owner. We, we think that the Chinese carry out probably going to have uh, Asians behind, you know, the, 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 the counter, if you will. Uh, to hear you say that uh, Africans are seen as being, uh, I didn't, what's the word? I didn't catch the word that you used, but the bottom line is like the little scammy emails, scam, that's what you said, the scammy emails that we receive often from, you know, various uh, countries in Africa. So is the conversation really different for a first generation uh, black person in Europe versus uh, Spain versus or or London versus Spain, you know what I mean, versus the U.S.? Is it different? I would say I think the first generation conversation isn't different. Um, okay. As somebody who I have, has seen what my parents have gone through and is now experiencing that herself, mm-hmm. I would say where we're lacking is, for example, so let's take, for example, BIPOC, right, in the U.S. Okay. So copy and paste that to the UK and their closest definition that's relevant to that is BAME, which is black Asian minority ethnic. So, and that conversation is mostly led by who they call Asian who are mostly South Asian because of Britain's history of colonizing India. So then it's this, it's more, it's not so much the, it's not so much that the conversations are different. I guess I'll, I'll correct myself there. It's the what happens the second generation when people looking for their place in society, and in, in this case, within the workplace, within the context of our conversation, are trying to find belonging and meaning and trying to reconcile their different identities, but are also looking to understand and even in some cases hold people accountable for their history. So Europe, obviously, being much older than the U.S. and while well, founding the U.S., <laughs> um, you know, there's really not been any sort of most folks I know who are from the UK or from Spain don't know the history of colonization. Mm. They don't know the history of, you know, anyone that wasn't, you know, aligned with this sort of glorified idea of, you know, the UK did no wrong and there were a couple of wars, but that's it. Mm. Yep. Right. So of course now they're they're thirsting for well, what's the other part of the story? How do I contextualize what my history is so that I am empowered with the knowledge that I need to actually lead these conversations and advocate for my people in a way that I can reconcile, you know, my British identity with my black identity or my French identity with my Moroccan identity, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Very so, interesting. Yeah, I, I, this is, I, and it's, let me say this, I always find myself looking to Europe to be more mature than than we are in the United States and, and a little bit more, I'm 
civilized, sophisticated. I might show you how I feel about the United States right now. Um, you know, when you're talking about sort of the the infancy of diversity, equity, and inclusion in so many states, Spain, Portugal, you know, wh- whatever um, nation state we're, we're talking about at the moment, how is the rise in nationalism overall in Europe driving those efforts, hindering those efforts, or um, providing greater pushback to more inclusive efforts at the social level or the corporate level? Mm, That's a really good question. I would say it's been really interesting for me from an American living abroad to see how many of those right wing sort of leaning or nationalist leaning politicians or policymakers really draw from or almost try and copy paste what they see in the US. And, and it's not the exact same words. But when you start to hear fake news translated seven different ways, you're like, hmm, (laughs) what are they trying to say here? Um, But at the same time, you know, in a weird way, I'm grateful for this past year. And I guess I lean towards optimism because I know that progress is an ever moving pendulum. Um, And sometimes you have to go backward to go forward. But the, with the challenges of this is what's at stake if you don't use your voice. This is what's at stake if like, cool, we had World War II, then we built the EU and everything was great. Now we're on the same currency. Great. And then Brexit happens. Mm-hmm. So the fragility almost is now, I would say within the companies that I'm liaising with here and with individuals that I'm speaking to here is actually forcing people to wake up and decide, well, I guess I can't take this for granted. How do I actually lead these conversations forward in, in my company or within my community or within my society? Because there's, they're not things that I'm just going to have forever. Um, and so, I mean, Poland, for example, there was the largest protest in their history um, when the right wing uh, political party in power said, we're going to make abortion illegal. And the reason so many hundreds of thousands of people poured into the streets was because they knew that they were a domino tip away from, if we let them get away with this, what's next? Yeah, I think that's just such a, a beautifully put point because I know here, at least I'll speak for myself, it, the the fragility of our world order and its dependence on correct behavior or um normal air quotes behavior uh has has really i think shaken a lot of us to our core and driven a lot of us not enough of us um to action and and i anticipate that over the next decade um we're really going to see either a far move right or we're going to be able to maintain um, a more, I'll say, codified or legislated um, liberal world order. So a, a long way to go. Yeah, that was a great question, uh, Julie. Uh, the, the, the one around nationalism. And it's interesting, Kay, that you responded 
and immediately attached it to right wing thinking. And and so I guess I have a question for both of you, because, Kay, you you beautifully wrap 70 plus years, 75 or so years of history into a five second response um, from World War Two to Brexit, literally 75 years in three seconds. And so my question is, is nationalism really a right right wing thing? Um, and and is it bad? I'm I'm being a bit snarky in asking. So is it a right wing thing and is it bad? If if I were talking about nationalism standing in the epicenter of Spain or I'm in Rome or I'm in Nigeria or I'm in Hong Kong, is nationalism solely a right wing thing and is it bad? I'm just curious. And both of you are on the record. <laughs> so we don't we don't I was gonna say we don't get a lot of snark from Torn on the Crazy and the King show. I'm very excited. Uh, <laughs> so um I think it, it's two things and this is coming from my political science background. So the, the first is that when we say right wing, we don't mean Republican. The, that's a, um, they, they can be the same, but by definition, they don't have to be the same. And so um, right wing is more, ethnocentric, um, country first, non-globalist, um, small C, uber conservative to the point I would say of, of xenophobia in a lot of ways. And then with the nationalism, right, there's a difference between nationalism and patriotism. And one of the things that is so powerfully smart that nationalists have done is that they have hijacked the thought that being a patriot is the same as being a nationalist and they're not being proud to be an American is not the same as being someone who only supports American interests at and, and white people, right. Mm -hmm. At the exclusion or, or detriment of other nationalities, the the global order, right? It it's country first in its truest form to the point that it hurts and excludes and isolates others. So yes, I think nationalism is bad. And yes, I think right wing extremism, nationalism is bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with patriotism or small C conservatism in a more moderate form. I copy paste Julie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's exactly where my brain went. As soon as you talked to Torian, I said, you know, I immediately made a distinction as Julie so beautifully did between nationalism and patriotism. And I think, like you said, I'm in a country that is just coming out of dictatorship. Really, like my mother-in-law went from washing her clothes in a river to WhatsApp in her lifetime. Wow. Wow. So, Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Hold that. Hold that. Hold that for a minute. You know, she said washing her clothes in a river to WhatsApp. Crazy. 
in one lifetime. So, so right? So, I mean, they don't call this crazy in the king for, <laughs> for nothing, right? But when you think about that, that that is a microcosm of of one person's experience that reflects what that damage did of trying to look inward. And I don't think, and it's really interesting. I, I actually had a conversation with my my Spanish husband, Javi, recently, and I said, you know, do you actually learn about the dictator the dictatorship and what happened? Um, and he's like, no, it just we had the civil war between who they call the Republicans, so people fighting for the Republic of Spain, and Franco, who was aligned with Hitler and Mussolini. <laughs> and the Republicans lost. And then after that, in, this, in their history books, it's just civil war, nothing else, and then the transition into democracy or constitutional monarchy. And that's it. Because there is a Spanish law called La Ley del Olvido, which is the law of forgetting, that it has made it illegal for anybody to talk about it. So, <laughs> I mean, that just to me, like that is nationalism in its purest form, right? It's not only are we going to look inward and punish anybody who goes against a, our sort of conformist idea of what we think is best in this world order that we're, or rather this national order that we're establishing, and then once we're gone, we still have control over the history. And that idea, I mean, that reeks of supremacy to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, like Julie was saying, I think, you know, from the U.S. perspective, it's been really interesting to see how that then translates to other right wing groups here. It's very much around conformity, like we know best. Um, you know, we had, uh, we unfortunately, we have a multi-party system in Spain. We unfortunately have a few seats in Congress went to Vox, their, the People's Party, quote unquote. But basically going back to a time in 2020, saying in the floor of Congress that women need to go back to learning how to sew in school. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that, I mean, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it just goes to show but, you, well, like, but, no. but but let me let me let me help you because I, what you did very beautiful and you gave us proximity uh which is the reason why we had been uh clamoring to get you on the show uh and and it happened at the time that it was supposed to happen will you do julie and i and our listeners a huge favor because you said it with such beauty uh that history the one that is suppressed the one that is challenged and not really talked about will you email that link to me or a link to something worthy of reading so when we when we drop the pod we could also drop a link uh because i want people to get even closer to what it was that you just mentioned can you do that for us absolutely i'll do you one better there's actually uh i believe it won I want to say it was a prestigious film festival, like, yeah, maybe Khan, I'm not sure, but it's on Netflix and it's a beautifully done documentary about an, a group of survivors of torture under the dictatorship who are fighting against La Ley del Olvido and following their story. So I'll definitely send that link across and I highly encourage people to watch it. Even my husband sitting watching it with me was like, I didn't learn this in school. I didn't know about this. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's awesome. Yes, please do. 
Beautiful thing. Featured in Fast Company, Thrive Global, Huffington Post, and ePay. I think that's, or LPay, E-L, uh, capital P-A-I-S. Uh, she, listen, Kay has leveraged her experience as a Filipino-American expat, uh, as she shared with you, based in Madrid, Spain. Uh, and I know that we, we concentrated our conversation a little bit differently this uh, particular episode, but Kay works with solopreneurs as well as Fortune 500 companies to really help them grow their visibility uh, through the power of storytelling. Before we get out of this episode, Kay, do Julie and I a favor. Uh, is there someone you'd like to give a name drop to? Someone who is doing remarkable work that should be amplified a bit more? Absolutely. So I want to amplify my friend in Amsterdam, the great Vivian Aqua. You can find her on Twitter at Viva La Vive NL. So V I V A L A V I V E N L. She's doing incredible work. Oh, oh, oh. Spell, it, spell it again. Spell it again. Spell it again. Vivian Aqua. And on Twitter, it's V I V A L A V I V E N L. Got it. Awesome. 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 And I'm sorry, I cut you off, but why are you amplifying her? She is doing incredible work as a person in the Netherlands of color. She's Her whole mission is to amplify voices, amplify the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I had the honor to speak on her, on her summit earlier this year called Amplify DEI. And her why, which I think is absolutely beautiful, is her son, Orlando and her wanting to see the world be a better place for him to grow up in. And that's why she's so passionate about the work. Just for that alone, you need to follow her. She's doing incredible things. Was that the, was that this her first summit? I feel like I saw that on Twitter, okay? Was her first summit. And yeah, she I saw that. <laughs> yep, yep, I saw that. Awesome. Julie, this was good. Yeah, great yeah. conversation. Great. Yeah, really good. Uh, you have any closing comments? Yeah, and I guess one last thing I want people to consider is just remember that there's as uncomfortable as the gray areas are between between what we know to be true. For example, the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation that we know in the U.S., Remember that even though it doesn't neatly apply everywhere else in other parts of the world, that's actually where there's room to play. Um, and there's room for you to embrace those subtleties and nuances and meet people where they're at, even if it means that the racism conversation doesn't happen as quickly as you'd like. And second of all, if you have dealt with your own experiences of non-belonging, that's also your superpower. I think I'm finally coming to understand that on this side of the conversation and from speaking to both Torin and Julie today, that you can absolutely choose to leverage those moments where you haven't felt like you quite fit into a box to bridge gaps and understanding in, in ways that I think our world needs more than ever. You heard her. KFAB on Twitter. K-A-Y-F-A-B. She says... She has a master's degree in waist up dressing. Yeah, man, she's also quite sharp. Uh, I mean, listen, an, a, an invaluable resource to have uh, on your Twitter timeline, on your LinkedIn feed. 
She's a valuable resource to have uh, as a consideration if you are a global concern, uh, an organization that is doing and or building high-performing teams outside of the U.S. I absolutely encourage you to follow her, to link up with her, and to reach out to her if you need some support. For Julie and I, an episode that we absolutely treasure. In the words of B.B. King, the beautiful thing about learning is nobody can take it away from you. I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe and to find your voice. Be a better human and have an awesome rest of the holiday season. So, Torin, we have a sponsor. Mad cool. That says that they appreciate the work that we are doing through this podcast vehicle. You know what else is cool is what other people are saying about Gusto. So give me examples. I mean, it's easy for you to say people are talking about it, but give me some examples. So Tom S. said Gusto has allowed my small company to offer big time benefits without an HR department. Shout out to Tom, but do you have more? Yes, I have another one from Sation who says Gusto is effortless, which is how I like HR. Out of sight, out of mind, yet doing what it's supposed to do. So what you are saying is Gusto is more than a payroll provider. Absolutely. And Gusto integrates with all of your favorite tools that, again, makes life easier. Tools like QuickBooks, Google, and and many others. So if you visit gusto.com slash C-A-T-K, that's gusto.com forward slash C-A-T-K, you'll get three complimentary months from Crazy and the King. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.